the John Curley and Sherry Elliker Show. Not starring John Curley today. He has the day off. So filling in is Cairo mega producer, talk show fill-in, and national card counter, Greg Tomlin. Hey, Greg. Wow, quite the introduction. Great to be here, Sherry. It is a pleasure and a privilege to be back. So, Greg, how many shows have you worked on just today? Just today, <laughs> only two. This is number three. I'm going for the trifecta on this uh, Friday. What did, What time did your day start? Uh, before the sun came up, around 3.45. Okay. Wow, you're right. like well, a farmer. You don't even so, know the yeah, matters. Really. You just follow the stars to tell you. I don't quite know if this is a dream or this is yeah. life imitating art. I don't know what's going on. If we hear snoring, we get it. And you're uh, absolutely allowed to take a nap during okay, the show okay. if you need to. Okay. So I want to start with something that everybody was paying attention to this week. And people were very surprised at yesterday when the verdict came back in the Alec Murdoch uh, trial. After only three hours of deliberation, um, the jurors said that they didn't really buy what he was saying. They didn't think that his reasons were good enough in terms of, you know, whatever it was that he was presenting as his reasons for not having done it and the fact that the guy is just a pretty terrible person. Were you following this, Greg? I wasn't until cable news became completely transfixed with the case And then I thought, well, I should probably be in the know about at least some of the details here. And I've been more fascinated about the American fixation with it rather than the case itself. And maybe that's something we'll get into here. So, of course, you know, I was curious as to what the verdict was going to be when I heard that the jury deliberated for only three hours. It became pretty obvious uh, that he was going to be convicted. And I did watch some of the back and forth this morning between the judge and are we calling him Alec Murdoch or Alex Murdoch? <laughs> so we we can debate this, but I have looked at I have spent an inordinate amount of time researching this. No, I want to put I, his name on trial. Right, I know it's true. And I, I Nora O'Donnell called him Alex Murdaugh. Okay, uh, but then I watched this Wall Street Journal little documentary type thing on it, and they did say Alec Murdoch. So I say we go with that. I kind of trust the Wall Street Journal a little more than Nora O'Donnell. Sure, okay. Um, so, yeah, I mean, four counts of murder. I'm sorry, four counts. Uh, he was charged with the murder of his wife, Maggie, his son, Paul, and two counts of possession of a weapon. He was sentenced to life in prison. And, um, you know, this was a guy that pretty much stole from everybody, uh, possibly killed a housekeeper, uh, did, uh, you know, just horrible things to rip off a lot of his clients. Um, he also admitted to spending $50,000 a week on drugs. I don't know how he still had a pulse at $50,000 a week, 60 pills a day or something. Yes, exactly. And so it depends on who you want to believe. Do you want to believe what they suggested here, which is that he wanted to distract from the fact that his son Paul was about to go on trial for the boating accident that killed a young lady and that he was about to have a tremendous financial downfall, which he couldn't afford, and also some repercussions for the death of the housekeeper that happened in his house. And so as a distraction, he decided the way to get out of this, or at least cause a delay was to kill his wife and son. This seems very far-fetched just on the surface. Not I mean, exactly a foolproof a, plan. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is this is a guy who is, again, a terrible person. But 
I think the one thing that was pretty clear was that they had a fairly strong family. It did seem like a leap to me that he would commit murder. Did you have any uh, apprehensions about it? Did you think for a minute, you know, maybe maybe this guy didn't do it, but if not him, who? I didn't really have any inkling one way or the other. I think what pushed the jury over the edge was the fact that they could place him at the scene of the crime just yes. moments before the murders actually took place. So was it his son recorded audio of him or something like that just moments uh, before the slayings. Uh, is that correct, I think? Yeah, he did. There was some video that they uncovered, and they also had, I mean, they went through really technical, um, uh, you know, evaluations of his Blood whereabouts. Blood splatter and, yeah. Yeah, and just, you know, that he could track him. He was at his mother's house, and then he drove very quickly back to the house and then back to his mother's house or something like that. So they had all of that, uh, all of that data that they, that they presented. There were a few things that stood out as, you know, potentially being problematic for the, the prosecution. One is that he's a really tall guy. And Mm -hmm. I think they suggested that a shorter person had to have committed the murder. It's certainly with his son. Um, I have a really hard time believing that anybody could kill their child. A spouse? Eh, I mean, that's terrible, but, uh, you know, we've all been married. I just think, I mean, it's just, but this, a child? Sherry, did you ever have a dateline phase or are you still in the middle of a dateline phase? Oh, Okay, Greg, a dateline phase is the understatement of... So it's an indefinite phase. Oh, it is It is not even a phase. It's a It's a tiny bit of an obsession. It's a way of life anybody. is what it is. It, a little bit, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, I'm really into it. Um, but for some reason, this case didn't didn't really hold my attention like some of the other ones have in, in the past. Um, I think we've got some audio on, uh, on on what the judge had to say, which is pretty interesting. We do, yeah. This is audio from the courtroom this morning. This has been perhaps one of the most troubling cases, not just for me as a judge, uh, for the state, for the defense team, as a member of the legal community and a well-known member of the legal community, uh, you've practiced law before me, and we've seen each other at various occasions throughout the years. And it was especially heartbreaking for me to see you um, go on, go in the media from being a uh, a grieving father who lost a wife and a son to being the person indicted and convicted of killing them. And my question is, do those comments from the judge meet Alanis Morissette's definition of irony, or is it just coincidence? <laughs> and then Alec Murdoch <laughs> clapped back. Judge, I tell you again, I respect this court, but I'm innocent. I would never under any circumstances hurt my wife Maggie and I would never under any circumstances hurt my son Paul. Well, and it might not have been you. It might have been uh, the monster you become when you uh, take 15, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 opioid pills. Maybe you become another person. I like the comments about the duality of man there. Uh, Sherry, so what's your take on that? 
Yeah, I, I mean, I think the judge was um, sending, you know, a real message to him, which is, you know, listen, um, you, you know, I've worked with you, uh, you're in this community, all of that, um, and that this is uh, such a fall from grace. And um, he still faces, by the way, Greg, another hundred charges um, for financial crimes, uh, for stealing $8 million, for trying to get a man to shoot him, uh, $10 million life insurance scam. I mean, he's not done yet. And I, I, I mean, it, it's, I, I guess in a way, if um, he gets more, you know, time, right? I mean, if he's got life in prison, I don't know really how much more time he could possibly add on to that to make an impact. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's really, um, it's really shocking the damage that this man has done. And, and to some degree, what his family did throughout their reign of terror in South Carolina, I mean, they sort of ruled that community and, um, it's, you know, and the judge says, maybe it wasn't you. Maybe it was the fact that you became something, um, that you didn't even know who you were yourself and that that's the drugs talking. Why does the true crime genre seem to be having a moment right now, whether that be podcast or docu-series, dramatizations, cable news? We just can't seem to get enough. And, you know, this kind of harkens back to, you know, I know Unsolved Mysteries was big in the 80s and 90s. You can even go back to the 19th century with Jack the Ripper and how that sparks a society's fascination. But I can think off the top of my head, you know, successful shows like True Detective, only Murders in the Building, Serial. Uh, there's a podcast called Cold that my uh, friend here, uh, Aaron Mason, helps produce. Why do you think it's having a moment, Sherry, in particular, in 2023 United States of America? I think it's... Uh, or is John it timeless? I, yeah, I think it is a little bit. I t- John and I have talked about this, about crime as entertainment, and how there is something ethically challenging about that. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I don't know if uh, you watched the show What About Pam, I think is the name of it. No, I haven't and it seen was, it. It was a show that it was a, a murder story that was featured on Dateline. And oh, Keith is this Morrison, Renee Zellweger? Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, so the daughters of the woman that, that um, this woman killed were furious about the show. And they said, our tragedy is not your entertainment. Mm. And as much as I am a consumer of this... I agree with them. I think there is something really unsavory about the fact that we are are so into it. I think for me, it's it's more of the stories and kind of the the strange thought that somebody you'd never expect to commit murder commits a murder. Yeah. And um and and how it's solved and how some of these detectives you know, we hear so much about police forces really not having a high clearance rate at all. They don't they don't clear any cases. They don't investigate them that well. And then you get these detectives sometimes in these little places and they go to extraordinary measures to reenact things and go, you know, do all these things to try to catch these these people. And I think that's the part that kind of fascinates me as well. Are you not a uh, a a person that is drawn to this stuff or only when it's completely taken over as far as the the news cycle goes? Well, so one of the reasons I mentioned a Dateline phase earlier in this segment is because a few years ago, my wife and I binge watched 
so many episodes of Dateline, and the most satisfying programs were the ones where when they wrapped up, you were able to turn to each other and say, well, that person got what was coming to them. You know what I mean? Or like, oh, yes. that makes sense. You know, sorted affair, salacious details and backlash and it results in a murder. And you go, OK, that's nicely wrapped up with a bow and it's kind of satisfying. And there is some entertainment value. And by the way, the announcers on that show have really uh, hypnotic voices that kind of draw you in. Right. They understand their medium very well. But also, like you, I can relate in that what ultimately turned us off to it were the Dateline stories that include that included children that were killed. And when we would get done with those episodes, we just felt like we had a horrible taste in our mouth. And exactly what you stated, it didn't feel like entertainment to us anymore. And then we thought, well, if it's not okay in that instance, why are we getting our kicks from adults <laughs> killing each other? Yeah. So maybe it's just all wrong in the first place to seek our entertainment from this. I was talking to my wife about this Murdoch trial, and I said, you know, you're probably an average news consumer where you dip into it a couple times during the day. Does this fascinate you at all? And we got to talking about it, and I decided there's three categories that you fall into here. One is someone who's completely obsessed with the case and is really interested by it. Two is the casual person who just kind of checks in on the details and the verdict. And three is the person who could just care less or doesn't want anything to do with it. Well, my wife uh, said she fell into that third category, and her reasoning, she didn't even have to think about it for a second. She goes, Greg... Uh, lives have enough sadness <laughs> to begin with, right? We yeah. all experience tragedy and grief in our own ways. I don't need to add more grief and sadness into my life uh, with strangers for entertainment value. And I thought, that's a pretty compelling reason. And yeah. I, I couldn't poke any holes in her arguing. Yeah, good for her. And and she's she's right. I mean, that is absolutely the correct answer that why do you want to watch someone else's misery? I mean, are you trying to uh, is it the, a thing where, you know, I thought my life was bad, but wow, get a load of that. You know, I don't know if that's if that's part of the psychology. It does feel like a very morbid escapism, though. I know that for me, I sort of get lulled into it uh, before we go to break. I want to play this one thing. If you could, uh, um, Greg, the O.J. Simpson Responding. I mean, there's layers of of why are do we care what O.J. Simpson thinks of another murderer? But uh, let's hear what he has to say. This is the authority on American jurisprudence. After the police officers had testified in my case, uh, all of the sheriff's department they ran the jail, not the prison, but they ran the jail, and that's why I was being housed. Uh, they said you're going home, and I said, "Well, how can you guys be so sure?" They said. When a jury sees somebody as lying, especially police officers, uh, they won't convict. And like it or not, those police officers, it was pretty uh, apparent that they were lying about stuff. Well, uh, that seemed to be the case here with Murdoch. The one thing that the jury must have seen is that the guy's a liar. And once the guy's a liar, you can't believe anything he says. Now, I thought, and as I said, I didn't watch the whole case, so I don't, I, I don't know. I'm not qualified to render a judgment one way or the other because I didn't watch it all. But I know the guy's a liar. It's hard for me to think that he could have uh, been on the stands five, six, seven days and without lying. And I guess that's the way the jury saw it. In any event, it's done. It's over now. <laughs> Down that's goes Murdoch. I'm just saying. Take care. 
relating to it from one murder to another. No, I mean alleged murder. Sorry. Yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, if, if he starts to become a subject matter expert on trials, that that's when I'm hanging up the crime card <laughs> completely. OK, I mean, that's just uh, unbelievable. Um, so coming up, here's what we're going to talk about. Uh, there are a lot of young men, Greg, many young men who are still single and they have a reason slash excuse for it. So we'll uh, we'll talk to about that in, in just a little bit. The John Curley and Sherry Elliger Show. John's off today, but filling in is Greg Tomlin, who is doing a radio marathon of sorts. So we certainly appreciate him being here. And Greg, it looks like young men today are either really sad or really smart. Oh, yeah. New data from the Pew Research Center has shown that 63% of men under age 30 are single, and that's up from 51%. In 2019, a couple of reasons for this cited in the story in the New York Post, COVID isolation and women's high expectations for something serious. I'm not buying it. Are oh, you? really? Not. I mean, how many how much are we going to use COVID as an excuse for everything? Very I true. Mean, I get that. I get the isolation was a bad thing. Nobody enjoyed that. It was hard on everybody. But, you know, birds and the bees, I mean, at some point you're going to want to be able to uh, be, you know, get a partner, or get somebody out there that, that you like to hang out with. And uh, these guys say that dating feels more like job interviews. And they say that women are putting pressure on them. What can you do for me? Where is this going? One guy gave the example that they were coming home after a first date and the woman was saying, you know, something about what they might name their children or what they, you know, really going way too into the future. So the women really don't want casual flings. Um, and the men say that flirting isn't even any fun anymore because everybody's, I guess, taking it too seriously or people are afraid to approach because they're used to, you know, guarding themselves with COVID. Um, I just, do you, do you really think that's the reason or do you think that some of it has to do with social media and the fact that people aren't as interactive as they used to be? Um, because they rely so heavily on their phones and their computers. My working theory here for this data, which I find stunning and a bit discouraging, that 63% of men are, are single under the age of 30, is I believe there's a phenomenon of directionless young males in the country that are figuring out their ish and don't know what their North Star is. And so they spend a lot of their late teenage years and 20s and maybe even early 30s just kind of twiddling their thumbs, asking questions about what does it all mean. Uh, In previous generations, there was a lot more of a direct track of here's what we expect from you and now go carry out your duty. And that has changed dramatically in my lifetime for the better in some instances but I would argue mostly for the worse, and the, the data is bearing that out. They, they quote this guy named Ian Breslow, who's a 28-year-old high school teacher who lives in Astoria, who's absolutely stunned and says, quote, like you mentioned, dates feel more like job interviews now, more like what can you do for me and where is this going? Oh, the horror. <laughs> like, <laughs> news flash to Ian, most women 
and maybe this is old fashioned, but I assume most women prefer commitment, security, reliability, (laughs) stability, and many shy away from just dudes who are looking for flings and hookups on the fly. I mean, he he says this like he's blindsided by the fact that when he goes out with women, they actually might want to know what he has to offer in life. Um, I don't know. I I found that quite stunning. Uh, Yeah, I I think that there is uh, sometimes men and women are at odds over these types of things. Women, when they get into their 30s, are certainly thinking about their biological clock. They're Mm -hmm. thinking about, you know, wanting to settle down. Not all women, but some women are. And men, like you said, if there is this kind of general malaise in terms of, People just aren't that ambitious anymore. Um, they're just not worried about like, you know, certainly my generation where success and, and being, you know, having a career and having a family and having all those things, that was your goal. That was your prime target. Um, and so now it's a, a lot of that. A lot of that has changed. Um, I do want to talk about this story. Uh, this is something that it, it People, there was a lot of uh, debate on this. It's about a young, a young man um, who suffers from from autism. It's in Colorado Springs, and he made a poster for a girl and wanted her to be his Valentine. And I guess he presented this to her in a rather public way, uh, maybe in the cafeteria, something like that. Well. She said, no, she was polite about it, but she said, no, I won't be your Valentine. Well, his mom got incredibly heartbroken over this and went to Facebook and asked everybody, hey, can you help him out? And all of these people came to his rescue and they made a poster saying, you can be our Valentine, Rowan or Roman. Um, you know, you, you don't have to be, feel alone. And they sent him all these different things, but there were other people that felt like, they were vilifying the young lady that said no to him, which she had every right to do. I think we've got some sound on a on a TikToker that had a really strong opinion about this. The Today Show titled it, you know, he was rejected, so they came to his rescue. Rescued him from what? He's not Timmy in a well. He is a boy who asked a girl to be his valentine, and she, from all sources I can find, politely declined. He chose to do it in a very public way. We've got to stop teaching kids to do that it's it's manipulative because it puts the recipient on the defensive it puts them in a position where everybody's watching and now you have to decide something in front of other people and in this case the media got word of it because the mom posted it to her facebook and the media has spun it that this little boy is the victim and that girl is being demonized while he's being coddled the comments on the actual poster from the other students are absolutely oh you can do better you can do better as though this girl did something wrong as though she's nothing as though she's less than nothing planting the seeds that if a girl says no to you she's beneath you that's <laughs> potty okay, that, that is from tiktok uh poet uh, potty mouth polly um telling us exactly what what she thinks you have kids would you encourage your kids to stay away from something like this i mean the the young man did this in a way that was probably embarrassing both for him and the young lady. Um, what would you if, if if one of your kids came to you and said, "Hey, I'm going to do this thing, Dad. Yeah. I'm going to you know say, will you be my Valentine in front of everybody?" What would you advise them of? Wow, this brings back pangs here from my high school and junior high days of asking girls to tolos and Valentine's banquets and stuff. Uh, I'm not sure this kid 
acted apart from any of the way his peers probably did. But like public displays of, of invitations are not anything new. I remember a girl asked me one time by like writing an invitation on a football and putting it on my car, and then all my friends were around, and it was you do sort of feel the pressure to say yes. Yeah. A- from a parent perspective. I'm not sure I would publicize my kid's disappointment like this. Uh, I don't really like that aspect of it. And then the fact that the kid is autistic adds a whole other element to the story. And so I kind of feel for all involved. And I I sort of wish the story had stayed local. And then it wasn't just another thing that someone looked to capitalize on and stir up social media into yet again another frenzy. If that makes right. sense. Yeah. Uh, yes, of course. And now this, but I think that the the good news about this is that the young man seems to be very, very pleased with the outcome. He doesn't seem to think that it was anything uh, terrible. You know, he was he was okay with it. The mother was heartbroken because he got mm-hmm. his feelings hurt, but it all ended up okay. But I I, I got to say that you know. Potty mouth Polly makes a point that you shouldn't you should be allowed to say no. I've always looked at these engagements, you know, when somebody gets engaged in the middle of an NBA game or something. And oh, it's like, yes. oh, oh, how tacky. Don't Give you find the break. rejections the most satisfying when that happens? <laughs> it's once in a blue moon that a, a yeah. guy gets shot down. But I always kind of relish. it. Yeah. Good for you. John Curley, Sherry Elliker Show. We would love to hear from you. You can text us on the state uh, roofing text line at 1-888-973-5476 or at mynorthwest.com. John Curley out today. Greg Tomlin is in. And, Greg, I know you are a movie buff, and I think you probably read this story. This is in the New York Times Magazine. It's kind of a love letter to the closing credits of movies. Are you the guy that sticks around at the end of the movie and and watches all of them and sort of points out, oh, that's so-and-so, or you just feel it's a matter of showing respect for the people behind the scenes? Good question. The author of this piece uh, posits that attention is a form of love. So when you stick around to see all the end credits at the end of a movie, whether that be for five minutes or seven minutes, you're really expressing an act of love for the filmmaker. And the author also notes how it it brings him or her perspective on the collaborative nature of making films. For me, I'll usually stick around during the end credits in the theater, but for a different reason. I sort of like to marinate in what I've just seen and sort of contemplate it for a little bit. And sure, I'll look at, oh, who did the cinematography here? Who Who is the writer? I'm less interested in things like costume design or set and makeup and all that kind of stuff. Although some people, you know, to each his own, they might love that as well. But don't you run the risk. I feel like the people that stick around for the whole time – come across to me as like a bit stuffy or a bit pretentious. Like, really, you're going to hang on to the bitter end here? Uh, so I'll, I'll two or three minutes. But I can't stand the modern trend of whether it's a streaming movie or show. What happens is the second the piece of art is over, and I keep calling that a piece of art, this, the credits go into this little mini box in the corner, and then there's like a countdown clock before the next production begins. Like you don't even have a split second to think about what you've just seen because these streaming companies want to keep you hooked and just your eyeballs glued to the screen for whatever content is coming up next. That really bothers me because I 
I, I find movies and shows are something that are fun and enriching to talk about afterwards or to think about. So you like the little break. You want to be able Absolutely. to reflect on what you've just seen and maybe, you know, maybe take a breather where you can look at the credits and see, oh, that person. See, I, my husband sticks around for the credits. Now, he has no interest whatsoever in movie making. It's not like like this woman's talking about how her parents were in the movie business and she says it's sort of like it must be like them looking through an old yearbook and mm. going, oh look, there's so and so. Maybe he's doing the set design here or he's the, that type of thing. My husband has no knowledge of any of that. I, I'm never sure why he sits through them. <laughs> he's um, just lazy. <laughs> it may, yeah, maybe he's just tired and, and can't get up. But I, I have to say as selfish as it sounds, I am up and out. I have no interest in looking through the credits. I just, and I know it's a little disrespectful because people that work behind the scenes are every bit as important as the people that are in on, you know, in front of the camera. So I, I get all that. I just, I don't know. It's just kind of, kind of slow. And I don't, wouldn't know anybody anyway. Um, I've done a lot of, um, you know, work in, you know, some movies and certainly did my share of lots and lots of extra work. And so I would always stick around to see if a movie was shot in D.C. I would stick around to, you know, kind of see my friends' names in it if they played a little part in something. Um, but, yeah, never uh, never wanted to hang out. And Jacob brought up a really good point, which is the theater people want you out of there because they got to clean up everything. The popcorn and the vomit. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, move it, will you? I used to be one of those people. Oh. Worked oh. at uh, Regal Cinemas and Crossroads for a summer. And I would uh, take those little water cups and fill them with popcorn and put a ton of fake butter on it and sneak it during breaks. <laughs> those were the days. Oh, but then there was boy. the whole cleaning up people's filth in the, in the aisle after films were over. So it was bittersweet. You have quite a resume, Mr. Tomlin. I will say <laughs> yes. that. Almost as long Between. as yours, Sherry. It was yeah. you. We used to joke at every job. I did have a lot of jobs, but never, ever a card counter. So I'm, I am <laughs> thoroughly and completely impressed.